So before I launch into whatever it is I thought you might be interested in hearing, uh, are there any questions about my instructions or any comments on your experience that you'd like to share with the group? Again, uh, you can't do it wrong, you know? You want me to talk louder? Oh, I got a sound man? I didn't even know I had a sound man. How, how come it feels wrong sometimes? Say more. Well, you said you can't do it wrong, but sometimes it feels that Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I understand that it feels wrong sometimes. And that this is a really common message from the mind. Something is wrong and something needs to be done. This is just another thought to be let go of. This is no more serious than any other thought that's just floating through. I know it seems um, more serious because it's so predominant. You know, it's such a recurring uh, thought. But I think that thought about just about every moment of my life. Hey, I'll be sitting there with my, my lover. We're watching the sunset. And this is so beautiful. We just finished a beautiful dinner. We had nothing but love in front of us. And, uh, you know, the sun is setting. and There's a cloud. And I can't seem to take my mind off it. It would just be perfect if, if only that cloud wasn't there. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is the nature of the mind. It's really wild. And, and it's beautiful to begin to see that not every thought is a commandment. Not everything that we think is to be believed. So I, uh, I appreciate the practice because it allows me to see thoughts as thoughts and not make much more of them than that. Does that make sense? Yeah. A big part of the practice is to just allow ourselves to have our experience. When I say that you can't do it wrong, I think uh, this is a valuable instruction. I'm not sure if it's 100% true. Maybe there is ways you can do it wrong, but I think it's worth allowing ourselves to relax even a bit more in that direction. So that's why I give it, because I think it's helpful. Uh, we, we tend to turn every moment as into some kind of evaluation of how we're doing. Spirituality becomes another test, another thing to get good at. This is actually the uh, subject of my talk tonight. It's kind of a mainstay of my talks because I find myself just amazed at the cunningness of the mind. It's just amazing to me how... uh, resilient in how uh, how even uh, smart the thoughts can be you know the the ways it can uh, distract me and pull me into a whole world of shoulds really really fantastic you know once you stop taking them personally it becomes fantastic till then it feels like I hate this you know why is it like this? And then it's like, well, why is the mind, um, how do you say it, right? Like it's, uh, there's something wrong with the world, the sky, the moment, and then it becomes my mind. And then spiritual practice becomes the next arena for self-judgment, you know? And that's really the, the heartbreaker. Because this is a refuge from that. This is saying... No, nah, man, we're calling, we're calling BS on the whole debate, whether you're a good person, you're a bad person, whether, whatever your debate is. My you know, personal debate is whether I'm a good person or a bad person, or whether you're lovable or you're not lovable, or whether you're doing this right or you're doing it wrong. That's what I love about the practice, is saying, no, nah, man, this is a straight-up refuge from that. And so when those thoughts arise, 
as uh, you know, is this practice the right practice for me? Is this the right teacher for me? Is this the right lineage? Is this the right room? It's actually kind of dim in here. <laughs> it's like endless. Endless what could be wrong with this perfect moment. You know? Once we head down that, that rabbit hole. What else is arising? What else? Any more instruction, uh, questions about my instructions or even comments on your experience of what that was like for you? Please. Thanks, bro. Sorry, man. I don't have a microphone in my group. I'm not used to this. Okay. Um, it was different for me to have um, instructions kind of woven throughout the, the sit. And, of course, the first thing that happened was, um, why is he continuing to give us yeah, instructions? Um, but once I let go of that, um, then I was able to... Um, you know, appreciate the the way that in uh, you kept kind of bringing us back. Mm. Help it help you kept helping us to remember because mm-hmm. we you know forget so much. So um, yeah. I I appreciated that different way of of, of sitting and and receiving instructions. Mm. Thank you. Anybody else? Any other comments or questions? Behind you. I just really like the um, the the definition of meditation as the practice of forgetting and remembering. Because mm-hmm. I'm forgetting a lot, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. So it's um, kind of lets you off the hook a little bit. Ah. But it's it's almost like this is exactly what's supposed to be happening: that's forgetting right. and remembering. You know. Because that's yeah. what's happening. Yeah. The other thing was kind awareness. Uh, a lot of times, most of the time through the whole meditation, I have no idea what kindness feels like. Mm-hmm. You know, awareness is guesswork. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm aware at all most of the time. So it's kind of uh, another excuse to beat up. And, and make myself wrong mm-hmm. for doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it is. It's the best that can be done at that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. So kindness, without making a job out of it, mm-hmm. letting it be the way it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe you could say something about that. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you, Michael. Uh, like I said, that's kind of the talk tonight that I had prepared it's about just that you know we sit down we, we come to practice how many people noticed the judging mind tonight in that 40 minute meditation so you know you look around most people in the room the other people it was there they just didn't notice it right? I mean we're, we're herd animals we're always comparing, you know. We always think that the person next to us, such a great posture, she must be so close to enlightenment, you know. <laughs> yeah. But very quickly we understand that this is part of the internal landscape. It's like the water we're swimming in, is that there's a, a constant dialogue and, you know, on some level, a critique of how am I doing? I actually met a guy recently, and he walked up to me and he goes, yeah, he introduced himself. I forget his name, but what he said next, I remember. He said, hi, my name is blank. How am I doing so far? <laughs> it's so honest, you know? <laughs> but you know the list that the mind has of, of all the things that could be wrong with this moment, and they start with me. You know, like, I'm not uh, 
smart enough or good looking enough. I don't make enough money. I, uh, you know, all of these uh, criticisms and judgments of myself. And then we come to the practice and they say, all right, check it out, man. That's what my teacher said. Just love what is. See if you can just love what is. It's like, okay, man, I'm going to do that. I'm straight up going to love what is. All right. But hold up. Actually, I'm real stiff. So what am I supposed to do with that? I got these, like, recurring thoughts about, like, uh, real negative. So just knock that out and then I'll love what is, you know? If you could just do me that one solid then it's going to be on. I'm serious. I love what is. And, you know, the idea that the cats are actually saying, no, man, we're actually asking you to love that. It's that. That's not even a thing. That's just what's in the way of the thing. That's, you know what I mean? So it can be super frustrating, you know, like, we bring this into the practice. So the practice is not what we thought it was, not what I thought it was. And I understand the practice as this continual opening to what is present. Because just like our friend said, the mind could turn almost every, any moment into suffering. You know, beautiful moments I remember the first time I ever felt this, first memory I have of it. I was 14 years old. It's 1981. I was at an Ozzy Osbourne concert. He was about halfway through, and I knew that, that he would be going off soon. And I just started feeling the grief that this is almost over. Imagine that the Buddha might have been talking about Ozzy Osbourne when he's talking about impermanence. If he could ever know. Jonathan Foyer writes, Sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. That has a certain weight to it, that, that poem. I like poems a lot. Because they induce a direct experience for me. Like I could feel that in my body. Mm, the weight. And when I come to practice, my teacher told me, she said, to let go. I was like, okay, I'm on it. I'm going to let go. The following week I went back and I says, all right, I let go. What's next? <laughs> and she said, no, no, that, I want you to do that for the first 10 years. I was pretty sure she just, you know, I was kind of an advanced student. I was a weekend. She didn't know what to say because I had done it so good. <laughs> and so, you know, because the teacher applications weren't pouring into my mail, I went back again, and I said, you know, I just need some deeper instructions. So I did it. Yeah. And over the years, it changed for me, this idea of letting things go. Because it, there was just a certain amount of urgency to it, you know? I was just like, all right, I let it go. Now, if you could just get the F out of here, you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, why ain't it going? I let it go. Why isn't it moving? It was a way to, like, outsmart my suffering. It was a way to not be with what is. I was trying to manipulate it a bit by letting it go. And then I started practicing with this idea of just allowing thoughts to die a natural death. Like everything, like this moment, this breath, this sensation, it's all dying a natural death. It's all living and dying. Beautiful. And this idea, uh, I, I see a lot in pictures. That's why I use the, the river 
metaphor. And I started imagining myself as a, a bouncer at a, at a nightclub. A velvet rope, you know? I mean, I'm 5'7", but anyway. I get to be however big I am in my mind, you know? And uh, the, the club was existence. And I could let things into existence, or I could keep them out. To let them in would mean they become a part of all that is, and subject to, uh, you know, life and death, just like the rest of everything that is. Or I could keep them out, and they would just stand at the door for a long, long time. I look back on my life, and I. Uh, See how many things could have, would have just come and gone had I let them enter existence. But the fact is, I held them down like a beach ball in the water. I'm not angry. Don't ever say I'm angry. You know what I mean? So, ends up what, what we can't be with ends up defining us. Because it's right there under the surface, under this thin spiritual veneer. Once we can admit it, then it, then it completes its course and, and can then die a natural death. Otherwise, we drag it through our relationships. Uh, we bring it to work with us. We talk our, to our kids through it. It's amazing. It's even how we talk to ourselves. This this self-criticism piece that I'm kind of pointing at, this self-judgment piece. On some level, it's like being at war with ourselves. And it can be incredibly painful. And, uh, you know, when I, when I started really letting myself feel it, I was just like, man, I thought this practice was supposed to help me. I feel worse than ever. You know, I felt like it was gaining momentum. And then I found this. It's by a a French archbishop. And he writes, As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we ever thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things. And we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So as we develop our practice, our awareness can feel like more ammunition for the critic. But it's important to see that the, the, as he begins, the light is increasing. That's all that's happening here. Hmm. Sometimes I try to understand, why, why does the mind do this? You know, where does it come from? Is it our culture? Is it our family? Is it our ego structures? Our superego? Is it our personalities? What is this, you know? I haven't found many answers in that reason of why. Usually why is a, a detour from the actual feelings into the logic and reason that I'm trying to apply It's a distraction from just the pain of being at war with myself.
you know, on whatever level that's true for you. I remember seeing that movie, Sleeping with the Enemy, and I imagined me in it, sleeping alone. You know, like that's how it felt. And maybe it's not that dramatic for you. Maybe it's just, you know, unkind thoughts once in a while. Maybe it doesn't feel like tyranny, but... uh, I hope that's true. You know? I hope you're listening to this talk and you're thinking, I don't know what this dude's talking about. (laughs) That would be killer news. (laughs) William James writes, this ceaseless frenzy of always thinking we should be doing something else. Hmm. When I think about the Buddha's take on nonviolence, and then I think about how hard we drive ourselves. I try to apply it. We can experience this as an unyielding drive that doesn't nourish us. This endless violence of how it should be, full of acu- absolute accusations. You always, you never, right? The inner voice. That inner critic is so easy to recognize because his voice or her voice is always without grace and love. The tone. So we get caught up in this endless becoming where one day we're going to be enough. If I work hard enough, if I'm successful, if I, I drop that weight or if I meet that someone special, then it's on. Everything I'm doing right now is just preparation for then. Does this sound familiar? And then we, we get introduced to the practice and we just superimpose that same nagging violence onto our new self-improvement model, you know? Once I get the hang of this, once I really understand the practice, once I find the right teacher, really the community, then I'm going to be peace. Right now, I'm still looking, waiting for it all to line up. And it's like a, it can be like a montage in my head, you know, because I say I see seeing pictures a lot, right? So I'm always kind of like imagining my life the movie of my life. I'm actually a little bit thinner. My skin is cleaner, you know, clearer, you know. I'm a little taller. It's strange. I got a nicer car. It's the same car, it's just a nicer version. <laughs> like, people laugh more at my talks. It's just like, yeah, man, that guy's killing it. Like, really? Oh, cool. It's so strange. This second-hand version of me. Even Rocky had a montage. All of this is based on the same idea that something is wrong. It's not working. So I start beating myself up. I don't sit enough. I'm not studying enough. The practice is not working. And we, we recall every place in our lives where we felt that way in our homes, in our relationships, at our work. And then, you know, we wonder why people don't want to sit. When you come into, into contact with that kind of judgment, it's just like, ugh, please. It's a misunderstanding. The mind is fundamentally not at rest. It's always looking and finding for what's wrong. This inclination which sounds like if only. It takes us out of the present moment, which is the only time freedom is possible. I can't be free in the future. I don't have any chance at being free uh, next month or last month. Those are just dreams, memories. So instead we turn our thoughts into a a virtual Netflix window 
when we just browse the categories of discontent. This is where I'm not enough, and this is where I change, and if I could change one thing, it'd be this for sure. And we do it to the people in our lives, too. Yeah, we do it to... Wow. (laughs) Our thoughts reassure us that if we just tried a little bit harder, we would get there. It's right around the corner. I mean, I'm so close. You know? It's like a mirage. It's just right around the corner. Yeah. But we never actually get there. I don't know anyone that's gotten there. Not through this model. What I mean to say is, this is the acquisition mind. And as long as meditation or our practice becomes another pursuit, we will feel like we are failing. Because this is not something to get. As I started out, this is a refuge from that. From all that assessment and evaluation. This is a refuge of spaciousness and rest. It's like going to sleep more, you know? Like you you can't try to go to sleep. You just let go and sleep happens, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's ending the whole debate. And whatever that debate is for you internally, we all have our own version of it. It's important to understand that the Buddha was enlightened and uh, Mara kept coming. I mean, he lived for another 50 years and Mara was just there. And you know, whenever people talk about, the, uh, about Mara, uh, there's always an epic kind of mythology to it. But it's important to see Mara in our own experience. You know, the, the, I experience Mara every day, every, almost every moment. There's an aspect that's like, wow, check that out. Check out the negative mind. Check out all the thoughts that are telling me I'm not enough, or whatever it is, the judgment, the criticisms, the you know, endless dialogue of, how this moment could be more killer. So the Buddha had a really uh, interesting way of working with Mara, the Mara of his own mind, obviously. And he would just say, I see you, Mara. And in that seeing, you would just, he would uh, experience Mara slinking off because the only way illusion works is if we mistake it for reality. So if we don't see thoughts as thoughts, we can take them as commandments. This is why the practice is so important. One moment at a time, one breath at a time, one thought at a time, we see the true nature of things. We're not fooled so easily. And we incline the mind toward kindness because that's the kind of world we want to live in because the mind creates the world we live in. So it makes sense to incline it toward kindness. Jonathan Foyer writes again, I've thought myself out of happiness a million times and never once into it. And it's just this hamster wheel of thought. And it's just so easy to turn the practice into another. I'm almost there. And, you know, we can come to the practice and we're like, boy, was I lost on a wheel. And then we just turn this into another wheel. And we start running. 
because we're about to get it. It's a, the place in the mind known for its unending unfulfillment in which we're always running somewhere, we're always getting somewhere. And, you know, it's, it's a, this is a practice of arriving. This is why I give the instructions to allow ourselves to arrive. And when I ask you to arrive, I'm asking you to arrive because I want to I wanna welcome you and I want to welcome the parts of you you don't think are welcome. That's really what I hope for, is that you'll bring even that. That's what I'm trying to bring here. You know, there seems to be two things in me. There's what's loved and what's longing to be loved. Thomas Merton writes, What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we're not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery, and without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. So we see, when we look back at our lives, how many moments we've postponed arrival. We didn't fully step into our lives because we thought something had to be different for us to do that. You know, it was when I get out of high school, when I move out of my father's house, when I get married, when I get divorced. This is all happened. And it was always right around the corner. Like a, I was like a little kid in the back of, you know, in Buddha's back seat. Are we almost here yet? You know, this endless feeling of almost. You know, one of my teachers said that uh, the definition of samsara is this urge to correct. This endless urge to correct. I never really realized that I was literally creating my own suffering with these ideas. I didn't know that. I wouldn't be doing it if I knew that. Nisargadatta, he, he points it out really clearly. He said, to know that you're a prisoner of your own mind, that you live in an imaginary world of your own creation, this is the dawn of wisdom. Imagine that, to realize that you're locked up. This is the dawn of wisdom. Hmm. I, uh, I use these terms of coming home a lot in my meditations, in my instructions. And I experience it almost like, a, like an amnesia that I heard in Michael's comment. I don't remember leaving the house, but here I am at my door again, and I walk in and I I sense that relief of what it is to walk in my door. And who knows how long I've been gone. It could have been 10 moments, could have been 10 years, right? But you know that feeling, that relief, that I'm home and I'm safe. Yeah, it's like some kind of uh, strange amnesia. But it's really, really beautiful. And the moment I remember, I'm supposed to be meditating, okay? I don't have to come back anywhere. I'm already back. That's a moment of wakefulness. That's a beautiful thing. So many, so many moments of my meditative life, 
I met that with so much judgment and anger. Man, you're supposed to be meditating. What? What's wrong with you? Why does your mind keep wandering? It was all those drugs, you know, whatever. <laughs> How could I be mad at a moment of wakefulness? I remembered. I'm back. Welcome. It's, <laughs> if every moment I came home, I had some kind of criticism that I should really remodel this place. Look how messy it is around here. <laughs> what is the... What, why would I want to come home? I still haven't arrived. Dana Folds writes, Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. And my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and I surely haven't practiced enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your stories of separation and failure. This is the day of your awakening. One of my teachers told me, she said, the Buddha warned about these thoughts. He said that 90% of our thoughts were around, was I okay? Am I okay? Am I going to be okay? I came from a really wild background. Homelessness, drug addiction, jail, very traumatic. And still, when I check in with this question, these endless thoughts of fear and worry, there's a basic okayness that I can touch in basically every moment. This idea that these are just thoughts. It's one part of the truth. And maybe it might be helpful. And maybe it's not. What I found more helpful in this particular conversation was to allow myself to feel the pain of being at odds with myself or rejecting parts of myself. To feel that fully. Not to try to dismiss it. Say, oh, they're just thoughts. Don't worry about it. Just keep moving. You won't have to think about it. And, and they'll go. Just do loving kindness and it'll be okay. <laughs> How do we let ourselves feel what's there to be felt? Only... This is the only time compassion can arise. Compassion can't arise unless we touch what's painful. And that's where most of us get off the bus. We want the compassion, we just don't want to touch what's painful. I understand that. I felt like I had enough pain before I came here. I had no idea what courage was. 
how do I really experience the impact of these voices, these thoughts? Hmm. We're trying to infuse the mind with this uh, kindness that we keep talking about, this kind awareness. And we don't have to believe these thoughts. We don't have to give them this ultimate authority. We can shift to a direct experience like the breath or the chair, my feet on this floor. You know, it interrupts the endless dialogue and it helps us wake up to right here and right now again. Joyce Gertler writes, Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the, unton- all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. Where I find them old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. For so long, I just wanted them to go away. How do we transform them into our teachers and see them as something that is completely lovable? turning the poison into the medicine, if you will. So I guess if there's a, a subtext to this whole talk, it's to just give yourself a break. Lower your standards, you know? Please, don't judge yourself for judging now, you know? That's the next thing, right? I promise you, you can't hate yourself into enlightenment. You can't. I tried. My whole family would be enlightened if that were true. So we have to befriend ourselves. I know these thoughts, they seem so personal, but they're not. Everybody is thinking them. When I think about... uh, this image of myself that I had such a problem with for so long. Now I experience it like, I I never had any kids yet. Uh, But I imagine if I had a little boy, how gentle I would be, how sweet, especially particularly when he messed up, which is, you know, I mess up a lot. But how, how caring would I be how loving. It gives me some idea of uh, how to hold myself in that great heart of compassion. Another thing that's helpful is the labeling practice. Again, once we say, I see you, Mara. I see you as a thought. I'm not under your spell. You know, It's like being at an IMAX theater and you forget that you're in the theater and you're just in that world. It's just like, whoa. Okay, I keep waking up. If we use this metaphor as this river, we don't have to jump on every boat that goes floating by. We can see, oh yeah, that's that judgmental thought. I remember when I used to suffer with you a lot. Oh, here comes another one. Letting the moment of awareness solicit you. And in that beautiful moment of wakefulness, not throwing it in reverse to evaluate your performance anxiety. How how was I doing back there? Hmm. Last poem. One of my favorites. It's by Derek Wolcott. Called Love After Love. 
the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself at your own door. And in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here and eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you had ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. You hear what he's talking about? It's so beautiful. He's talking about a party. He's talking about a homecoming. Sit, eat, drink. Welcome back. But you got to understand that there's no homecoming without exile. I'm so grateful for my alienation, my, my own discomfort in my own skin that sent me on a mission to find something and really running into the arms of the Dharma. sent me on a mission to even this very moment. So it's not about being perfect. That's not a gift of generosity. Right? If we're going to talk about how do we love ourselves, I experience love as a great gift of generosity that I feel for another person. If, if you're perfect, that's not a gift. That's just common sense. I'm going to love what's perfect. That's not a gift. That's no practice. Imagine that my vows to my wife, I'm going to love you as long as you're perfect. Cool? That's bananas. It's not about being perfect. It's about, how did he say it? He said, to be without anxiety about our imperfections. We're going to be imperfect. That's the practice, is to love our imperfections. To be spiritual is to, to stop trying to be more spiritual and open-hearted. This, this version of yourself that you have that lives somewhere in your brain. Instead, we're supposed to open our hearts to exactly how we are. If you found these words helpful, beautiful, if you didn't, uh, please discard them. Right. Your time and attention are great gifts, and I hope I haven't wasted any of them. So we have some time left, and I just want to know how this is landing. Is this making sense? What's not making sense? What's happening out there? Show something back at me. And use the microphone so I don't get in trouble again. <laughs> Wherever it is. Thanks, bro. Anybody? Please. Um, so when I was, when you were talking about, um, being in the river mm. and, um, coming up on shore and like letting the river go, I found, sorry, I found myself, um, like falling into the river and like being, um, just like in pain and not being able <clears throat> to like, um, uh, to like come out, you know? Mm, 
I guess I guess that that's pretty much it. Every, like every time that I, um, I'm not going to be able to say it. Sorry. It's okay. So, stay with me for a second, because I want to understand. Did you understand the poem I was talking about when I said to understand that we are a prisoner of our own minds, that we live in an imaginary world of our own creation? This is the dawn of wisdom. Right? Could you see how this might be the dawn of wisdom? Because you've been splashing around that river for however your whole life. You're just realizing you're in it and that there might be a whole other world outside of it. It's actually kind of good news. I know it doesn't feel that way because uh, to wake up in prison is a pretty disturbing feeling. But the fact that we've been there our whole lives and now that we have an option, we may be able to step out of it. But the first thing is to wake up in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Hmm. And thank you for such a heartfelt share, you know, like I can just feel the whole room just reaching with compassion. You know, because we all have this feeling, you know. So thank you for sharing that. Really beautiful. Hmm. I notice myself now, like, I don't like to move too fast. When I come into contact with something so beautiful, I just want to, like, stop and just let myself feel it. Hmm. Then I hear one of my friends whisper in my ear, don't make this weird, bro. (laughs) What else? We got one over there. You want me to closer? Yeah, I I can talk so softly, man. (laughs) Particularly if I'm moved. Please. Um, I could really relate to when you said at war with myself. I feel like there's so many times when I sit that I'm able to step back a little bit and see that it's it's my own war mm-hmm. and that I can pull other people from outside and mm-hmm. pick them, put them on a side and have this big war going on. And I feel like over and over again when I'm able to sit and see it that I get this feeling of hope mm-hmm. because I do see that it's just me. <laughs> Yeah. And that it isn't the whole world like like that story that is going on tells me. And I'm just so grateful for it. And it's amazing to hear again <laughs> that that's not just my experience. Yeah. It's a shared experience. So I'm really grateful for you. Mm, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I guess a lot of it is just normalizing it. It's like, man, nobody was talking about this in my neighborhood. Let's all stop pretending that this is not what's happening. You know, and I, I'm sure it's to different degrees for other people, but yeah, I like. I think there is some value to just comparing hallucinations. <laughs> what else? I don't know if I need a microphone. I've got a big mouth. They're going to want you to use it. Oh, okay. It's part of the recording aspect. All right. um, you know, I really related to what you said about the. Um, you know, the light of the awareness as we, you know, get farther along in this, you know, and I, I, I can relate to that being in recovery because, you know, after so many years of, you know, blocking everything out, substance abuse and what have you, that, um, you know, we don't really see our, our faults and our, you know, the things that are painful to look at. And yeah. um, so... Having been in recovery, you know, he starts to see that stuff, and the awareness of it, I guess, is um, is has become more painful because we have to start dealing with it. So, uh, I don't know yeah. if that makes any sense or not, but uh, I I did like that you touched on that. And the more we start seeing uh, seeing ourselves, the 
the harder it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's not all just good news. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, the practice is uh, so beautiful that, it, that it, uh, it's easy to just look at the beautiful aspects of it. I remember in the beginning I told my teacher once, he's like, hey, how did you like that talk? I was like, man, that was, that was so pleasant, man. He looked at me like I was on fire. Like, pleasant? How dare you? You know? The Dharma's not pleasant. The Dharma's disturbing. I must not have done a good job. <laughs> like, literally, this was happening. I was like, wow. Okay. You know, but uh, I understand. And, ah, man, I wouldn't be doing this, uh, yeah, for almost 20 years now if, uh, if the gifts weren't amazingly um, falling all over me. You know, and I certainly wouldn't have dedicated uh, the last 10 years to spreading the message of uh, freedom beyond conditions. Yeah, I mostly teach in uh, jails and prisons, and hmm, I teach a lot of the youth. Hmm. I look across at these tables, you know, they they always have tables between us, and yeah, I see myself sitting there looking back at me. And when I see the courage of being able to to sit with what they're sitting with, you know, around their families not being safe, around the court dates and possible sentences, you know. And then we end it uh, in the same way that we would end here, which is dedicating the merit. These young boys and girls dedicating any benefit that came from us sitting and sharing like this to all beings in all directions for the sake of freedom. (sighs) Yeah, they teach me a lot about courage. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Yeah, I really appreciate it and I appreciate the invitation. Thank James for me. It's been a while since I've seen him. Hmm. Hmm. I just read the little piece of paper and it says, y'all usually end with some metta. I'm going to end with a little dedication. Hmm. Hmm. Again, allowing yourself to be exactly as you are. Any benefit that came from us sharing, from sitting together, listening, we dedicate to all beings in all directions. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. May our beings know freedom. I hope to see you all in another dream and everyone in between. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.